Acts, Acts chapter 24 this evening. <clears throat> Acts 24, and let's read from verse 1 this evening. Acts 24, verse 1, it says, And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders, and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I might, sorry, that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear of, of us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to come and to consider your word and consider the truths contained therein. We pray, Lord, that you'd bless our time as we look at this passage. Lord, you'd speak to our hearts through your word. Lord, you would instruct us and teach us, Lord. Just give me wisdom and guidance now as I speak. I pray, Lord, that it would indeed be your words, it would be your thoughts. And that, Lord, we would leave tonight singing your praises and giving all glory and honour unto your name. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. The final division in the book of Acts, beginning in Acts chapter 21, verse 27, right through to the end, verse, uh, sorry, Acts 28, is a comprehensive description of Paul's witness before various audiences a variety of audiences. You know, we've already seen Paul stand before the Jews and give witness. We saw him do it on the, the steps going up to the, the, the castle, to the fortress there as he turned and he proclaimed the truth to the, the crowd gathered in the temple. We saw him stand before the Sanhedrin as well. And so Paul has borne witness before the Jews. And now beginning in Acts 24 we see the location has now changed and the audience has changed. Primarily now the audience is Roman officials from this point on. And this section begins the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy concerning Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Where we read this, it says, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of of Israel. As I said, Paul's already testified of the law before the children of Israel. And so now he's going to testify of the law before Gentile kings, before Gentile rulers. And in the chapters that follow, 
Paul is going to appear and testify uh, before the governors, Felix, in uh, Acts 24, as we'll see tonight, and then before Festus in Acts 25, and then he's also going to appear before King Agrippa II in chapter 26. And so indeed, just as the Lord had said, Paul is going to testify before these Gentile kings, these Gentile rulers. The chapter before us this evening covers a two-year period in which Paul was in prison in Caesarea. And these two years, you know, they seem to be a wasted time from the human point of view, don't they? It seems these he's stalled, he's just stationary in Caesarea. What's the point of these two years? But you know, God had a plan, and we sort of talked about it this morning, didn't we? God is still in control. Paul is exactly where God wants him to be. God has a plan, God has a purpose to it all. And most of the chapter here focuses only on the first few days of this two years of imprisonment. The first few days where we see the hearing before Felix. And obviously we don't have the time tonight to cover all of this hearing. And so we're only going to look at the first part of it this evening. We're going to look at the false accusations that are brought against Paul. And so first of all this evening we see the accusers. We see the accusers. Look in verse 1 with me. It says, And after five days Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. Verse 1 informs us that after five days, this delegation now arrives from Jerusalem. And they arrive to bring their accusations against Paul. You know, this is pretty swift uh, response, isn't it? Okay, five days. And so, they're, you know, they're traveling. And basically, the idea is they've left straight away, haven't they? Okay, they're acting swiftly here to come and to bring these accusations against Paul. They're quick to leave Jerusalem and to come to Caesarea. And I mentioned it this morning, but, you know, Caesarea was not a place the Jews liked to go. It was a pagan center. It was a place of pagan worship. And the Jews avoided it at all cost. And so the fact that they're so quick uh, to come down to Caesarea, they're so quick to move on this, just shows how eager they are to be done with Paul, doesn't it? It highlights how eager they are to finally be rid of Paul, and they see this as their opportunity. It emphasizes to us their deep hatred for Paul and what he stood for. And leading this delegation from the Sanhedrin is none other than Ananias, the high priest. Ananias is leading this group of men. This is the very same man that Paul had called a whited wall or a hypocrite. And you get the sense that he wants vengeance, doesn't he? He wants to get vengeance on this man who called him a hypocrite in front of all of the Sanhedrin. And so he's there leading this this group and he brings with him the elders as well. And they come to Caesarea to present their case. And in order to make sure that their case has the best possible chance of succeeding, they bring with them a man named Tertullus. Okay, it says in verse 1, And after five days Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus. He's called here an orator. Okay, now this is from the Greek word herator. Okay, and basically it's where we get our English word rhetoric. Okay, and it's the idea of someone who is skilled in the art of influencing 
an audience with their speech. The term is also used to refer to someone who is a lawyer, a legal advocate. Okay? They're a smooth talker in matters of the law. And that's essentially what Tertullus is. He is a hired lawyer, hired by the Sanhedrin to present their case to Felix. It says at the end of verse 1, it says, who informed the governor against Paul. He's the one doing the informing. He's the one presenting the case. He's their hired lawyer, if you like, their, their gun that they've brought to the fight. You know, Roman law was just as complex as our modern law. And so it makes sense to bring an expert, to bring someone who actually understands it and knows how to approach it, knows how to apply it successfully. And so the Sanhedrin here, they hire Tertullus, and basically they're pulling out all of the stops, aren't they, to make sure that Paul is condemned. That's what they're trying to do. Okay? They're making sure they've got the best possible chance of succeeding. We see, secondly now tonight, we see Tertullus' opening statements. We see his opening statements. In verse 2 we read on, it says, And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear of us of thy clemency a few words. This is his opening statement, if you like, before the, the court, okay, before Felix. And what Tertullus does is he begins with a succession of flattering statements. He flatters Felix. Apparently this kind of lavish flattery was the customary approach of Roman lawyers of the day. This is how they would begin. They would start by flattering the one who's presiding over the proceedings. And it was all about trying to secure some goodwill. You know, if we flatter them, we butter them up, perhaps they'll look favorably upon our cause, our side of the case. And so he butters up the governor Felix here. You know, to tell us here, he shows himself to be a master of manipulative words, doesn't he? Of flattery. You see, the reality is that nearly all of his praise was false. It was false. In verse 2, he starts out, he says, uh, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness. That's an absolute lie. You see, the reality was, as we said this morning, the very opposite was true, wasn't it? It wasn't a time of quietness. It wasn't a time of peace in Judea. Felix, instead, by his brutal suppression of dissent, all he'd done is stoke the fires of insurrection. And the place was in turmoil. There is more and more assassinations taking place. There's more and more infighting going on. There's more and more insurrection. And so, instead of having quietness and peace, there's the very opposite. There's turmoil. The commentator Williams writes this. He says, Felix's rule is generally regarded as the turning point in the events that led to the Jewish war in AD 66. Before his term, uprisings had been isolated and occasional. Under him, they became an epidemic. And so far from enjoying quietness, it was an epidemic of uprisings and insurrection. 
Silas then also speaks about worthy deeds. He goes on in verse 2. He says, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. He implies that worthy deeds have been done because of Felix, that he's instigated these wonderful things, these upgrades in their cities, and these wonderful things have been put into place. And yet when we read history, Felix is not credited with anything. He's not credited with doing any major works of improvement during his rule. Instead, he's known for his greed. He's known for his corruption and his attempts to enrich himself, not give back to the nation. In verse 3, Tertullus then goes on to declare that his subjects welcome his rule with all thankfulness. Verse 3, it says, We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. He says, We like your rule. We're happy under your rule. We accept it with all thankfulness. Once again, this is simply contrary to fact, isn't it? Contrary to facts. Truth is that Felix's lack of sympathy and outright cruelty towards the Jews, it ultimately led to them requesting that he be removed from office. And Nero actually obliged. Nero was the one who took him away from office at the request of the Jews. And so all of this is basically a lie. He's just buttering up Felix here. He's trying to get him on side. And Tertullus concludes his opening statements of flattery with verse 4. He says, Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear of us of thy clemency a few words. Basically here in verse 4 he says, I could go on. I could say more about how great you are, but I won't for time's sake. In other words, he's run out of things to say. He's got no more flattery left, and so now he brings it to a conclusion. And he finishes it with one final phrase, one final praise, sorry, for his fairness. He says, thy clemency. Basically, clemency here speaks of moderation, fairness, gentleness, none of which Felix possessed. No better words would be excess, injustice, ruthfulness would better describe Felix. So the point is, his opening statement here is all about trying to butter him up, get him on side, before he now delivers the charges or the accusations against Paul. That's our third point this evening. We see now the charges against Paul. The charges brought against Paul. Verse 5, it says, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took And we would have judged according to our law. Now he's done his best to flatter Felix, to build him up, to get on his good side. And Tertullus now goes on to present the charges. And there are three distinct accusations or charges that they bring here against Paul. Firstly, Tertullus says that he's a pestilent fellow. Verse 5, we have found this man to be a pestilent fellow the word pestilent here is the same greek word that's translated pestilence in other passages and of course pestilence is speaking about a disease that's highly contagious and so basically he's saying paul is a disease he's a disease he's he's a pest he's a nuisance 
He's someone going about infecting others with discontent and causing trouble. And he goes on along that train of thought. He says that he's a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. He says this one, Paul, is causing new problems. He's a, he's a virus. He's causing problems right throughout the Roman Empire. He's stirring up trouble among the Jews against Rome. He basically charges him with being an insurrectionist. That's what he's claiming he is. You know, this was a very serious charge. And this was a charge that if proven was enough to get Felix to act. That's why he starts here, because if you like, this is the serious one. This is the most serious charge. This is the one that if he can get Felix to believe, then Paul will be dealt with brutally. You see, Tertullus knew that Felix was brutal in dealing with anyone who caused public disturbances. Anyone who was uh, deemed to have been an insurrectionist or to cause some sort of riot was dealt with brutally by Felix. And so what he's trying to do here is he's trying to paint Paul in that light so Felix would just, without question, deal with Paul. And we're done with him. You know, the truth of the matter is that Paul had not been the one stirring up trouble, had he? He wasn't the one stirring up trouble. It, it is true that, you know, often Paul's presence ended in riots in the cities that he went to. But those riots were always started by the unbelieving Jews, weren't they? The Jews were the ones who were the movers of sedition, not Paul. They were the movers of sedition. They were the ones causing the problems. But you know, this is not the first time that this false accusation has been brought against Paul, is it? Now, we've seen it already in the book of Acts. Back in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, let's just turn there. The Jews at Thessalonica made this same accusation. We'll start in verse 5, Acts chapter 17, verse 5. It says, But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar. And I sold the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Now we looked at this passage a while ago, but the Jews at Thessalonica, this is what they did. They claimed that Paul was turning the world upside down, that he was causing riots, causing upheaval in the Roman Empire. You know, this accusation also reminds us of the accusations brought against the Lord, doesn't it? Turn to Luke chapter 23 with me quickly. Luke 23. Luke 23 and verse 1. It says, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him under Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found... This fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And then drop down to verse 5. It says, And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. They made the same accusations about the Lord, didn't they? That he was someone causing insurrection, stirring up riots against the Roman government. And so again, Paul is being accused just like our Lord suffering the same false accusations, the same lies that our Lord faced. 
You see, the truth is that in Paul's ministry, he never sought to do this, did he? He never sought to stir up trouble against the Roman governments. You know, Paul didn't preach against the government at any time. You look through the book of Acts, he not once preached against the Roman governments. Even though the Roman government is full of corruption, the government is doing all sorts of wicked and sinful things. They're allowing all kinds of wickedness to take place. Paul never is speaking against the government. What did Paul do? Paul simply went about preaching the truth of Christ, the gospel message. That's all he did. And the reason is because only Christ can change the hearts of men. If you're going to change the government, you've got to start by changing the hearts of men, don't you? And that's the, that's the point. Paul went about preaching the truth so men might get saved, so that then that might affect the nation, it might affect the way things are done, it might affect the world. He preached Christ. See, Paul hadn't been called by God to preach against the government, had he? He hadn't been called to do that. And indeed, that's not what we've been called to do either. We haven't been called to do that as believers. We've been called to do the same thing as Paul. We've been called to preach the gospel message. That's our place. That's our responsibility as believers. And by doing so, men might then get saved. Their hearts might be changed. And that's how we affect change, isn't it? In the government for the Lord. It's by preaching the truth. And so Paul here is falsely accused of leading these riots, of causing problems against the Roman government. The second charge that's brought against Paul here is that he was a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. Look there again in the, uh, verse 5. It says, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's called a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. Now, this is the only time we see the word Nazarenes used to describe Christians in the Word of God. It's applied, you know, many times to our Lord, isn't it? Jesus of Nazareth, and he's, he's called the Nazarene. It's applied to him, but only here is it applied to believers. And it seems that this was a name that came to be given to Jewish Christians in Semitic speech. The commentator Bruce said this, it was probably used of Jewish Christians from very early days and remained their designation in Semitic speech. To this day, Christians are known in Hebrew and Arabic as Nazarenes. Now that was interesting. Even today, in Hebrew and Arabic, they call Christians Nazarenes after our Savior, after him. And of course, this is a title that carries with it or contains within it an element of contempt, doesn't it? You remember in John chapter 1, verse 46, Philip had asked the question, he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? See, the point is that there was a connotation about this place. It was a place held in contempt, that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And indeed, that was intensified by the fact that our Savior came from there was raised there in Nazareth. And so Tertullus uses this title for Christians here. And he accuses Paul of being a ringleader of this sect. The term ringleader here speaks of a soldier who appeared at the, the front of the army. He's the one leading the charge against the enemy. It speaks of a champion. And Tertullus here basically says Paul is the champion of this new sect he's the one leading the charge 
And you know, there is truth in this accusation, isn't there? Paul was certainly standing on the front lines for Christ. He was the one leading the charge to push the gospel message, the spread of the gospel around the known world. Paul was at the forefront of that charge. He was leading it. You know, what Tertullus is implying here is that Paul is heading up a new, unrecognized and dangerous religion. He's implying that Paul is leading a religion that's a danger to the Roman Empire. Now, Rome recognized and approved of the Jewish religion. And until this point, Christianity was under the same banner. They just saw it as a different branch of the Jewish religion. And so it was allowed, it was permitted by the Romans. You know, this accusation here by Tertullus is meant to brand Christianity as being dangerous, as being an illegal religion, and therefore in need of being stopped. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's trying to get Paul accused of here. And indeed, eventually the Romans would instigate state-run persecution against believers in an effort to stop the spread of Christianity. And that day was coming, but it hadn't arrived yet. But he's accusing Paul here of leading this sect, and he's saying that it's a dangerous religion, dangerous to the Roman Empire. And then the third and final accusation is that Paul had sought to profane the temple. Look in verse 6. It says, Who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. Now this goes back, of course, to the original charge, doesn't it? The original accusation that was brought against Paul by the Jews from Asia. They had accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. That he had defiled the temple. Go back to Acts 21 with me in verse 29. We'll start in verse 28. It says, Crying out, men of Israel, help, this is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. But they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. In Acts 21, this is where this accusation was laid. They accused Paul of defiling the temple, of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts. But you know, notice there is a difference here in Acts 24 and the accusation that's laid here and the one in Acts 21. You see here it says at the start of verse 6, it says, Who hath gone about to profane the temple. The accusation here is that he attempted to do it, not that he actually did it. Acts 21, they claimed he had done it. He did bring this Gentile within the courts. Here, they claim he sought to, or he'd gone about, attempted to profane the temple. Basically, the charge has been downgraded, if you like. And this reflects the weakness of their case, doesn't it? It reflects the fact that they have no evidence to prove that he had defiled the temple. There's no witnesses to substantiate the charge. There's there's no evidence to prove any of it. And so in essence, they downgrade the charge and just say he sought to do it. He wanted to do it. He, He attempted to. And the question might then be asked, why does this charge even matter to the Romans? Now, they're standing here before Felix, the, the Roman governor. 
Why does, why does Rome even care that Paul has profaned the temple? Why does that matter? Now, how could a purely religious charge hold up before Felix? Well, we need to remember that the Romans had granted the Jews the right to prosecute and even kill someone who violated the sanctity of the temple. Okay, the Jews had given, sorry, the Romans had given the Jews that authority. And so this charge here is meant to declare to Felix that the Jewish leaders were within their rights. It's, it's Tertullus saying they were within their rights to arrest Paul because he sought to profane the temple and we were within our rights to sort to do with him as we saw fit. That's what they're trying to say here. And the end of the verse 6 makes this clear because it goes on, it says, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. Tertullus says, you know, he broke our law and we were going to deal with it. We were going to deal with this. The implication is that they were within their rights to seize Paul in the temple. And what they're now doing is they're pointing the finger at Lysias and they're saying it's Lysias who's out of order. It's Lysias who's done the wrong thing. He interfered. He shouldn't have. He should have let us deal with it all back in Jerusalem. And that brings us now lastly to the criticism of Lysias. The criticism of Lysias. Look there in verse 7. It says, but the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. So Tullus now proceeds to complain about Lysias. He complains that Lysias had prevented them from disposing of Paul, have of carrying out their right to deal with him for seeking to profane the temple. And they claim that Lysias did so with great violence. Now, if you remember what happened in the temple, it wasn't Lysias who'd shown great violence, it was the Jews. They had beaten Paul. And if it wasn't for Lysias, he would have died. And so Lysias had simply come down and broken it up. But they accuse him here of great violence. And basically, they accuse him of hindering the course of justice. And Tertullus then goes on to criticize the fact that Lysias had commanded them to bring their accusation to Felix. He says in verse 8, commanding his accusers to come unto thee. He says, now he's told us we've got to come to you and, and bother you with this, this problem. You see, the insinuation here is that they should have been left to deal with Paul on their own instead of bothering Felix. There was no need to bother Felix. No need to bother Rome with this. That's what he's trying to say. He's saying, look, we could have dealt with this back in Jerusalem. Sorry to have wasted your time. We've got to deal with all this. If Lysias hadn't interfered, it would have been dealt with by now. It would have saved Felix the trouble. It would have saved Rome the trouble. And basically, this is all a veiled accusation that Lysias had overstepped his jurisdiction. And then he goes on in verse 8, to state this at the end, he says, by examining of whom, now that's talking about Lysias, so by examining of Lysias, thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him, Paul. And so basically he concludes by saying to Felix, he says, look, when Lysias comes, you can ask him and he will corroborate our accusations. He will confirm everything that we have said is the truth. 
You know, Tertullus here is speaking with a fair bit of confidence, isn't he? That Lysias is going to agree with their version of events. That Lysias is going to agree with their accusations against Paul. You know, perhaps this confidence comes because Lysias isn't present. He's not there. And so basically they, th- they think, well, we can make this, uh, this statement, we can make this grand statement that he will support us, and maybe Felix will believe us and just deal with Paul and be done with it. You see, the point is that Lysias would have had a different story, wouldn't he? You know, we saw this morning that he said in his letter that Paul was not guilty of any crime. Paul was not worthy of bonds or death. He was only guilty of religious things. He was guilty of his faith. And so Lysias would have had a different story. You know, perhaps Tertullus and the others here believe that Lysias wouldn't actually come down to Caesarea. Perhaps they were hoping he would never actually come down and so they make this declaration. You know, it must have made them nervous later on in verse 22 when Felix says he's going to wait till Lysias arrives. Verse 22 it says, And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. That made, must have made them sweat a little to hear him say, I'm going to wait for Lysias and we'll hear what he has to say about all this. You know, Tertullus has now finished his address. He's stood up as the lawyer for the Jews. He's made his accusations. And we read in verse 9, it says, And the Jews assented, saying that these things were so. He's made his accusations against Paul, and now the Jews, the Sanhedrin, these ones who made the journey, they put their seal of approval on all of Tertullus's words. They assented or they agreed to everything that he had said. In other words, they join themselves to his lies, don't they? They join themselves. Remember, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the, supposedly the ones who are upholding God's holy law. And they now agree to Lysias's, sorry, Tertullus's lies. They put their seal of approval on it all. You know, when we look at this opening statement as a whole, verse 1 to 9 as a whole, you know, their end game becomes clear. Their strategy here was to let Felix's reputation as a hard-hitting and inflexible ruler do the dirty work for them. They painted Rome, uh, Paul sorry, as, a, as someone guilty of political insurrection, uh, political sedition against Rome. They painted him as someone who was leading a dangerous new sect and they made it clear that he was worthy of death according to Jewish law. And what they hoped was that Felix would act in his usual manner and he would just simply on the basis of their testimony be brutal and execute Paul. Now of course what they didn't count on was God. (laughs) Keeps coming back to that doesn't it? the Lord, the sovereignty of God. They didn't count on the Lord and the promise that God had given to Paul in Acts 23 verse 11. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. God had already said he's getting all the way to Rome. And so it didn't matter what they did. It didn't matter the lies, the accusations they brought. It didn't matter whether Felix believed it or not. Paul was not going to be executed. Paul was not going to be put to death. God was not finished with his servants. 
You know, and we've said it before, but God's servants are invincible until God's finished with them. No man can touch them. And Paul was right where God wanted him to be. And the Lord is going to defeat the lies, these false accusations. And nothing they tried was going to be effective while the Lord still had a purpose for Paul. You know, during this whole time, Paul is standing there or sitting there in silence. You just imagine him just sitting there patiently waiting while all these lies are being laid against him. And they were lies. As we said, he wasn't stirring uprights against Rome. He wasn't leading a dangerous new sect against Rome. And he hadn't defiled the temple. All of it was lies. And Paul is simply sitting there waiting his turn patiently to answer these accusations. And that's verse 10 onwards. And Paul's response is pretty awesome. And we'll look at it next time, Paul's response to these false accusations. But you know, Paul is right where God wants him to be. He's suffering these false accusations, these lies against him, simply because he was serving the Lord. You know, may that be true in our own lives today, that there is nothing for men to accuse us of. We talked about it this morning, that we're blameless in the eyes of men. And if we are then falsely accused like Paul, if we are lied about and we suffer for righteousness' sake, well, we can rejoice, can't we? Because God's in control, God knows. You know, Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You see, no matter what men may say, about us no matter what they may do unto us we just need to be faithful we just need to be faithful and respond in the right manner because god's in control isn't he the lord's on the throne and he will reward us in due time let's close in a word of prayer dear lord and heavenly father we thank you for your word and lord tonight we've we've only scratched the surface of chapter 24 we've looked at the the accusations that are brought against paul these lies that are, are laid against him and Lord, we pray that you would, you would help us all, like Paul, to respond in the right manner, as we'll see next time. Lord, help us to live a life before men that's blameless, so there is nothing they can accuse us of. And anything they do accuse us of would simply be lies, Lord, and we're suffering for righteousness' sake. Lord, may you help us to remember these truths when we are slandered by the world. Help us to remember that you are in control, that you are overall. And Lord, may we just seek to be faithful to you. Bless now as we close, we pray in Jesus' name.